Well, good morning, everyone. Um, sometimes life takes very unexpected turns. Uh, right after I graduated from college, I met um, a girl from Texas. We were working together on a ranch in Wyoming. Uh, we dated for about six months, and then um, I knew if we wanted to make this work, uh, we needed to live, into the sa- live in the same city. Um, she had gotten a job in Austin, Texas, and so I decided to look for a job there as well. Now, I was from the East Coast. I had never been uh, to Austin, but I visited. Uh, I fell in love with the city. It's a really cool place. And uh, I got three job offers in three days. And so that just seemed like confirmation. I took one of them. I packed up all my stuff and moved to Austin. Two weeks after I moved there, we broke up, uh, which is a whole other story for another time. Uh, but suddenly life had taken this really unexpected turn. Um, now, on one hand, it wasn't all bad, right? I'm in this great city, and I have this new job, and I'm starting a new career. I was working as an engineer at the time, uh, but I didn't know a single person in Austin. Uh, The only reason I came there or moved to this new place was uh, to make this relationship work, and now that's gone, and so uh, I'm confused. Um, I'm angry. Uh, I'm angry uh, at her. I'm angry at myself because I kind of knew things probably weren't going to work out. So why did I make this decision? I'm angry at God. God, why did you confirm this whole thing? Um, I'm lonely. I'm working really long hours. Um, it's hot as heck in Austin. They have, I learned they have one season there. It's called summer all year long, right? Uh, and there's scorpions in Texas. Nobody told me there are scorpions in Texas, right? So literally and figuratively, I find myself in this very unexpected place in life. And we all know what that's like, right? You've had some of those twists and turns before where life didn't work out the way that you thought. Um, Maybe it was in a relationship. Maybe it was with a job. Maybe it was with a school that you thought you would get into or that you thought would work out. Um, maybe it was when you thought you would get married or, or what you thought a family would look like or when you would have a family one day or how your kids would turn out, right? But oftentimes our life takes these unexpected turns and we find ourselves in places we never thought that we would be. And it's always hard. It's confusing. It's very unsettling. It's like the, the ground has is, is sort of moved underneath you. And oftentimes it's really, really lonely. Today, uh, we're wrapping up our series on the story and the life of David, and I want to tell you about a season in his life where where things take a really unexpected turn, and it's actually near the end of his life. It's near the end of his reign as king over Israel. It's at a time when life should be stabilizing for him. He should be on cruise control. Everything should be going smoothly. He should have everything figured out at this point, but that's not what happens things sort of begin to fall apart. And so I want to tell you this story. I'll, I'll sort of summarize the first part of it. It's a long story. It spans several chapters in the book of 2 Samuel. So you can read it all for yourself when you get home today. But I'll, I'll sort of summarize the first part, and then we'll look at a few verses together and ask some really important questions. So if you were here last week, uh, we read a very painful story about David and Bathsheba. 
David does something horrible. He tries to cover it up with deception, with manipulation, eventually with violence, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And finally, God confronts him and basically says to him, David, you're just manipulating and you're controlling and you're deceiving and you've turned violent, and all of that is going to have consequences in your life. And it's not just consequences for you. It's going to have consequences in the lives of all the people that you're closest to. Because that's almost always where the collateral damage happens, in our families or the people that we're closest to. And that's what happened with David. A few years after that, uh, David's firstborn son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar, David's daughter by a different wife. David is upset about it when he finds out, but he ends up doing nothing about it. And we don't really know. The story doesn't say. Is David an absent father at this point? Has David lost moral authority with his family or with his kids because of what he's done and because of his past? Maybe David is trying to protect Amnon. Amnon was the oldest son. So Amnon would be heir to the throne. Amnon was maybe the one that David was putting all his hopes in. He was going to pass the kingdom off to Amnon. So maybe David is, is simply protecting Amnon, and that's why he doesn't do anything. We don't really know. But Tamar's full brother, Absalom, is livid about this. He's so angry. He can't believe this horrible thing that Amnon has done. And eventually, Absalom's anger boils over, and he murders Amnon. And then he flees Jerusalem. He goes into hiding to escape punishment from his father, David. David is distraught when all of this happens. He mourns for the death of his son, Amnon. He weeps and he wails. He's filled with rage towards Absalom for what Absalom has now done in light of the whole situation. But as time goes on, David begins to realize that he has to bring Absalom back. He's already lost one son, and he doesn't want to lose another. And so three years after all of this, David sends messengers to find Absalom, who's living in exile, and to invite Absalom back to Jerusalem. And they promise Absalom, if you come back to Jerusalem, you won't face judgment for what you did. So Absalom returns. But David doesn't face Absalom in person. He won't even see Absalom. It's almost like David wants to forgive him, but he doesn't know how or he can't find it in his heart to actually forgive his son Absalom. And so Absalom is in Jerusalem for two years. Welcome back to the capital city. But David refuses to actually be in his presence or face him face to face. And it destroys Absalom. Because Absalom doesn't want to just come back to Jerusalem. He wants to come home. He doesn't just want a a legal pardon for what he's done. He wants forgiveness. He doesn't just want the king's mercy. He wants his father's love. And this is where we see one of David's huge flaws. It's like David knows how to be king, but he doesn't know how to be a father. He knows how to dispense judicial mercy, but he doesn't really know how to love. 
And so Absalom waits there in Jerusalem. And for two years, he's waiting for his father to show any kind of love towards him. And when David never does, for Absalom, he experiences it as total rejection. And then he decides for the rest of his life, he's going to reject David back. Maybe you've heard uh, the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. That's this story. Absalom is deeply hurt by David. And it doesn't start there. There's, a, there's hurt from Amnon. There's hurt from David. Like, it goes way back. But Absalom is deeply hurt by David. And he decides he's going to spend the rest of his life making David pay and hurting David, his own father, back. So here's how he does it. He plots and he schemes. First, to win the hearts and the affection of the people of Israel. And if you read the story, you find out Absalom is good looking, like his father David. He has leadership abilities. He's good with people, like his father David. He's this natural born leader. And so he sets out to undermine David's authority throughout all the kingdom. He begins to spread rumors and lies about David in Jerusalem and outside the gates of Jerusalem and in the countryside. Of Israel. He begins to tell people how bad of a king David is and all the ways that David is not good for the people. And if only Absalom was king, he would be so much better. And eventually, Absalom gains such a following, people are won over to him that he amasses an army and begins to march on Jerusalem. And David is forced to flee. And we read that David gathers his remaining family. He gathers his few followers that are still loyal to him. They pack up their belongings. They pack up their lives. And they begin walking out of town. And the people who still like David begin to line the streets as David is leaving Jerusalem. And they're weeping and they're moaning as this defeated king is leaving in shame. And as David is walking out of the city that day, he must have been thinking, God, how did this happen? How did my life come to this? I never could have predicted this a few years ago, that one of my sons would have done something horrible, and then another son would have murdered that son, and now that son is trying to murder me, and I've lost my reputation, and I'm losing the kingdom? And the Bible says this, this is from 2 Samuel 15, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. So David is crossing the Kidron Valley, which is this small valley just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. It's like the city limits. And the people are wailing and they're weeping for David and he's hanging his head in shame. And and just like many years earlier when Saul chased David out of the royal palace for the second time in his life, it says David is running into the wilderness. Literally and metaphorically. But David is at his best. When he's in the wilderness, it's almost as if when everything is stripped away, that's when David is at his best. And when he's leaving Jerusalem that day, 
when he's hanging his head in shame, when he's making his way back into the wilderness, he does a few things that are really powerful. They're subtle, and so if you're reading the story, it's easy to just skip right over them. So we're going to pause and look exactly at what David does, because at one level, David offers for all of us an option of how we might respond when life takes an unexpected turn in our lives. But on a deeper level, I think what we're going to see today is David's legacy. It's what defines his life, way more than his victory over Goliath, way more than his failures with Bathsheba. There's something that defines his life, and I hope it can define ours as well. So here's what happens. David is down in the valley. He's leaving Jerusalem. And here's what 2 Samuel says. Zadok was there too. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. So All the people that are loyal to David are leaving. Zadok and Abiathar are priests. They're going with David. They, uh, as priests, the Levitical priests, they offer, uh, they take care of the sacrificial system, and they're also responsible for taking care of the ark. And you guys remember the ark. The ark is this ornate box that has some sacred objects inside, but really itself is a sacred object. And it's what people believed would embody God's presence. It symbolized God's protection and God's blessing. If you had the ark with you, you had God with you. And so sometimes they would take the ark into battle because they knew then God would be on their side in battle. Or you remember when they brought the ark back into Jerusalem and David danced and he went crazy and there was this huge celebration because now God is going to bless the kingdom and the king and the city and all that's in it. And so as they're leaving the city that day, it's kind of like, we're taking the box with us, right? We, we don't have time to take everything with us, but we are definitely taking the box with us because eventually we're probably going to go into battle against Absalom and we want to make sure that God is on our side and whoever has the box has God on their side. And so the priests are carrying the box out of Jerusalem. Don't put it on a cart. They learned that mistake once, right? And they get to the bottom of the valley. They pause. They set the ark down. They offer a few sacrifices And then look at what David says next. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. Like David just says, hold on. Let's pack it up and let's take it back. Because it's almost like in that moment, David realizes, I think I'm trying to hold on to control here. I think I'm about to manipulate the situation again. I think I'm probably tempted to use the ark to make sure God stays on our side and make sure that we win the battle that's coming or take care. And it's almost as if in that moment, David realizes, I have to let go. I need to give up here. And so he says, take the ark back. And then he follows it up with this. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and he'll let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And this is like an amazing statement by David. It's almost as if David is saying to God and to those around him, 
I've got hopes and dreams and expectations, and here's what I thought my rule would look like, and here's what I thought my family would look like, and I never thought it would come to something like this, right? And I got to let go of all of that. I need to just take all of that and surrender it to God. And, and you know, God, I don't really want to leave Jerusalem, and I don't want to lose my kingdom, and I don't want to lose my power, and I don't want to lose all of those things, but. I'm just going to hand all of that over to you and I'm going to entrust you with it. And if you want to bring me back, that would be awesome. But if you don't, do to me what seems good to you. And at a time in his life when everything inside of him wants to, to take control of the situation and find a solution, it's almost like David is saying, no, no, no. I'm going to surrender this situation, my expectations of how it should go to God. Look at a second thing that happens. David sends the ark back, and then it says this. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. You might remember that shows up in in Jesus' ministry. It's just opposite of Jerusalem. This is the same place where Jesus, before he goes to the cross, is weeping in the garden the night before that. It says, David, his head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and they were weeping as they went. Covering your head was a sign of grief and lament. And I mean, this is a terrible day. It's probably one of the worst days of his life. So everyone's weeping. And then it says, now David has been told, David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel is probably someone you haven't heard of. He's not a major character in the Bible, but he's actually a really important person. He's one of David's closest confidants and counselors. He was known to be someone who was extremely wise, who always gave God's perspective on something. And so whenever David had a difficult season in his life, or whenever David had a hard decision to make as king, he would always ask Ahithophel. Ahithophel was like his life coach. He was one of his, his most trusted people that he, he believed in and he always listened to and he trusted completely. And in the middle of losing everything and walking out of the city, he receives word. Oh, by the way, Ahithophel has been part of this scheming and plot with Absalom all along. And now he's on Absalom's side. So how does David respond? Look at the next verse. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Now, notice what David doesn't do here. He doesn't complain to everybody when he finds out Ahithophel has betrayed him. He doesn't give up all hope. He doesn't say, that's it, I'm never trusting anyone else again, right? David doesn't unleash on everyone else around him. It just simply says, the very next thing he does when he finds this out is, he prayed. He talks to God first. And he says very simply to God, hey, God, um, don't let Ahithophel help Absalom the way he's helped me. Turn his counsel to Absalom into foolishness. But I think he prayed more than that in this moment. 
In fact, scholars are pretty sure there's an entire psalm that's dedicated to this moment. It's Psalm 55, and we don't have time to read it all, but if you go read the whole psalm, it's about a moment in David's life when his enemies have surrounded him, they're beginning to come into the city, and he's forced to flee the city. And he begins to pray all of these things to God about being flee, having to flee the city because his enemies are going to overtake it, and he's calling out to God to save him, and here's what I want you to do to my enemies and he starts to describe all the enemies and listen to this in the very middle of the psalm he says if an enemy were insulting me i could endure it if a foe were rising against me i could hide but it is you a man like myself my companion my close friend with whom i once enjoyed sweet fellowship my companion attacks his friends he violates his covenant his talk is smooth as butter yet war is in his heart His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. But as for me, I trust in you. And most scholars think this is almost certainly a reference to Ahithophel. Because Ahithophel has betrayed him, and as as David in that moment begins to think back to all the ways he's trusted Ahithophel, all of the wise words that Ahithophel had shared with him in the past, and now he's saying, all those words were smooth like butter, but now I see what was really in your heart. You were betraying me the entire time. And David's angry and he's hurt, right? And, and part of him wants God to wipe out all of his enemies. But at the end of the prayer, it's almost as if he says, okay, but I want you to take Ahithophel, and I want you to take all of my enemies, and I'm just going to entrust them to you, God. I mean, how hard is that? To take people that have betrayed you or hurt you in some way, and instead of saying, they need to pay, and I'm going to make them pay, to say to God, God, I'm going to leave this in your hands. You, You know I want them to pay. You know that would be awesome if I saw you punish them. But I'm going to surrender all of that to you. That's what David does. He surrenders his expectations, what he wants to happen. He surrenders the people who have hurt him. But there's one more thing I want to point out in this story. David is making his way out of the Kidron Valley, and then he comes to a little village about a mile outside of Jerusalem, and look at what happens. It says this. As King David approached Bahirim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there, His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. As he cursed, Shimei said, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. So so this man is is cursing David. He's throwing stones, probably not trying to actually kill David. It's more of a way to shame him and insult him. And he's yelling, you're a murderer. You're a scoundrel. You're just getting what you asked for. God is, make, is, is paying you back for all the horrible things you've done. And in the past, David would not have hesitated to go over and kill this man instantly for insulting him. In fact, one of his soldiers offers to do it. It says this, Then Abishai, son of Zuriah, 
said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But David has none of that. It's almost like David is just done at this point. He's not totally done with being a warrior. He's going to fight more battles in the future. But in that moment, it's like he's done with himself. He's done with his pride. He's done with his ego. And so instead of killing this man, it says this, David then said to Abishai and all his officials, just leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. And so David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. See, David knew. You know what this guy is saying? Some of it's probably true. I mean, it is true. I have been a scoundrel. Yeah, I am a murderer. And a lot of the problems I'm facing have just been building up for years and years and years. And I'm a huge part of those problems. And if this is what it takes to humble me, if this is what it takes to humiliate me, a guy throwing dirt on my head as I hang my head in shame, well, then I need to be willing to accept that. And on the toughest day of his life, right? It's like God, or it's like David is saying, God, here's the situation. I surrender it to you. The people who have hurt me and betrayed me, I surrender them to you. And even my own wounded pride, my heart, my ego, I just take it all myself. I just surrender it all to you. The question that I think we need to ask as we pause and think about our own lives. It's simple. <clears throat> is there anything you need to surrender to God right now? Is there any sense that life is taking an unexpected turn for you? Certainly for all of us with the pandemic over the last two years, but maybe something's happened. Or maybe you're in a place in life that you didn't think you would be in. Maybe your job isn't going the way you thought. Maybe a relationship. Maybe there's, maybe there's just something, and this is not the script that you wrote. What would it look like to just take this season, take your plans, your script, and your expectations, and say, God, I'm going to surrender them to you. I'm going to entrust you to do with me what seems good to you. Or maybe there's somebody that's, that's hurt you. Somebody that you're deeply disappointed in. What would it look like for you to take them in that situation and just say, I'm going to trust you with it, God? Or what would it look like to take your, your pride, take your wounded ego? What, what, what will it take for you to come to the end of yourself like David did and just say, I'm just going to give it all to you? And I'm going to trust whatever you want to do in this situation. I mean, for David, it took losing almost everything. But that's what he did. 
He trusted God with it. And he turned to God. Eventually, God brought David back. It didn't make everything better. Absalom was actually killed in battle. Not by David himself, but he was killed in battle. And when it happened, David wept over another dead son. It's like finally when he lost Absalom, he felt and could express the emotion that was always in there. And it was another sad and tragic ending to a problem in David's family. As David entered the end of his life, his health declined, and eventually when he passed away, his son Solomon took control of his kingdom. But as we end this series and we think about David's legacy, I think we have to be honest. David wasn't always a good guy. He had a lot of failures. But there was something about the way he lived his life with God. He experienced God and he surrendered at key moments of his life, his life over to God. And it's extraordinary. Eugene Peterson is a writer and I think he captures David's legacy the best. He writes this, David deals with God. As an instance of humanity in himself, he isn't much. He has little wisdom to pass on to us on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent and an unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. But David's importance isn't in his morality or his military prowess, but in his experience of and witness to God. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. And that's true of us as well. Whether you're in your teens or your 20s or your 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s, wherever you are in life, every event can be an experience with and a witness to God in your life. And the question is, do you realize that or not? Are you aware of that? And are you willing to surrender at every turn, the expected ones and the unexpected ones, everything to God? You don't always have to. You can try to keep maintaining control. You've got lots of options. But if David has anything to say to us, it's simple. The best option is always taking what you have and handing it over to God and saying, God, I trust you to do what's best. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, I um, pray that over the, just the next few minutes as we wrap things up and we sing a song together, um, that you would bring to mind whatever it is in our lives right now that we're holding on to that we need to let go of and that we need to entrust to you. Help us to remember ways we might have done that in the past and the ways that you've always been faithful. Help us to remember how much you love us as a good father. And God, whatever it is, help us to have the courage to hand it over to you and surrender it to you. I pray this in your name. Amen.